Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. University Press of Colorado is pleased to announce Alan Sandstrom and Pamela Sandstrom's newest book, Pilgrimage to Broken Mountain, Nahua Sacred Journeys in Mexico's Huasteca Fair Cruzana. To Alan and Pamela, would you gift our New Books Network with a little bit more info about your background and research experience? Yeah, I guess I'll start. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you, uh, Nathan, for inviting us uh, to this podcast. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I am a cultural anthropologist and have spent um, since 1970 many decades studying a single Nahua village in northern Veracruz, Mexico, and along with uh, Pamela, who's right here. And um, most of our field work has been in Mexico among Native Americans, Nahuatl speakers, and um, but we did have a, uh, a six or seven month uh, stay with the Tibetans in the Himalayas in the early 1980s as a kind of a break from our Mexico research. But we've been focusing mainly on these, this one particular culture, this one particular community in uh, northern Veracruz, Mexico. And Alan uh, and I met uh, shortly after he had spent uh, uh, a short stay in 1970 and a longer stay uh, from 1972 to 73 in Mexico before we met. And then we met right when he returned from the field in 1973. Um, and since then, we have been doing this work together. I was a, an art history major originally, uh, but I discovered that anthropology uh, sort of seemed like a larger framework. I became a librarian during the course of our collaboration and life together all these years. Um, and I have uh, my career was in uh, academic librarianship and uh, information science. So I think we made a a good team. Alan always jokes you should marry a librarian. Right. What led you both to the topic of sacred journeys and what do they represent for you in your academic career? All right, that's a a complicated question, but uh, to simplify it a little bit, um, we are doing sort of a general uh, study of social life and customs in this community. It's a community, by the way, of 600 people that when we first went there is 100 miles from the nearest paved road. And initially, 80% of the people didn't even know Spanish, but now probably 80% of them do speak Spanish. Um, so we've been studying a number of things. We've published a lot on their uh, different aspects of, the, of their life lives. But one of the kind of mysteries that we were unable to get much information on was their religious system. We had attended dozens and dozens of rituals, uh, cleansings, curings, uh, dedications to the corn, to the maize, uh, offerings to the sacred hills, all kind of things like that. But we were never quite able to to put it all together. We interviewed people. We uh, spent a lot of effort reading everything that everybody anybody's written about it. But it wasn't until 1998 when they invited us to come. This is 28 years after beginning field work there, by the way, that they invited us to come on a pilgrimage to a sacred mountain. And that's when we began to totally focus on the uh, the, the religious system. And what about you, Pamela? Do you have anything to add? Well, it's been a collaborative effort, that's for sure. Um, when I return, came to the village for the first time um, in 1974, just for a brief uh, visit, and then we came back uh, many times after that. We've uh, spent many years in residence, usually uh, on a 12-month uh, sabbatical leave, so that that, that occurred fairly often, you know, often in our careers, often enough. It was, um, it was definitely a collaborative effort. And we'll, it turned out that uh, the focus on religion was really an ideal uh, thing for us because, interestingly, uh, direct questions are rather considered rude. You don't get a good answer when you ask direct questions. So a long time and a lot of observation, very much like, child-rearing happens in, in a community like this. Uh, the Nawas don't 
go for long explanations. So it turns out that um, staying a long time, returning together as a couple, then later returning with our son, Michael, who enjoyed being in the, in the village. It's a great world of freedom for kids uh, there. Um, that turned out to be uh, why we focused our attention. And then we will talk in a little bit, I hope, about the paper figures, uh, the sacred paper, paper cutting that the ritual practices uh, circul- uh, center on. Mm-hmm. How have scholars, either in anthropology or other disciplines, responded to your work thus far? Well, uh, one of the things that's interesting is the book uh, was dated, is dated 2022. It was scheduled to come out. It did come out in January, but boy, there was a printing error. The book is a beautiful production by the University Press of Colorado, but they agreed and their printer agreed that it was a failure. Uh, they, it has 375 color photos, so uh, they agreed to reprint, and the book did not come out again into our hands. It was released in late May. So the truth is uh, we just received yesterday our first uh, review in in a journal called Reading Religion, uh, published by the American Academy of Religion. And that was a really nice and appreciated positive review. But the work that leads up to this book, as Alan will explain, has has been, uh, I think, very, very well received. The body of work that we've both contributed to, Alan wrote a book called Corn is Our Blood, and uh, that's uh, had, I think, we think it's had good impact. We'll talk more about that. Yeah. And so the region that you describe in Pilgrimage to Broken Mountain, where is it and why is it important? Okay, it's in uh, it's uh, northeast of Mexico City, which is located up about in the center of the country. It's on the Gulf Coast, and it's in the uh, Sierra Madre Oriental, the uh, the mountain chain that goes from approximately South Texas all the way almost to the Yucatan Peninsula. It's an extremely remote area, as I mentioned. There was no roads in it until fairly recently, and uh, it took all day long uh, to, to even uh, get into the area. There's been very little anthropological work done in this region uh, and none uh, uh, on the Nahua people themselves, even though they represent several hundred thousand people who live there. It's a tropical forest. It rains a lot. It gets extremely hot in the uh, summer. And it is, um, it's a difficult place to get around. It's very hilly. There's plenty, there's streams and rivers all over the place. So there's no bridges of any kind. There weren't any at that time. So it's very difficult to get around. And it discouraged people from uh, engaging in long-term field work there. So that was one of the attractions for us. Pamela, was there an attraction that you wanted to mention? <laughs> They say the butterflies bite in the in the Washtaker region, and I have to concur with that. <laughs> okay, um, why the year nineteen ninety eight and not some other year? Was this the time that you just decided to go? No, that's a good question. Uh, we had been going to the field on and off uh, for years, and uh, since nineteen seventy, as we mentioned earlier. Um, But 1998, 28 years after the first fieldwork there, was the first time we were invited by a ritual specialist to join them on a a sacred pilgrimage. So we did that in 1998, and since then we've been on five pilgrimages in total. And the pilgrimage is the the most elaborate and uh, of of all of the ritual aspects of Nawa religion. And so we got to see a cross-section of the entire religion during this pilgrimage march and all of the altars and the offerings that they made during it. And so we've spent the last eight years, frankly, uh, putting all this information together that we gathered on these five pilgrimages and uh, and uh, writing this book. You mentioned your son, Michael, but for the audience, who else accompanied you on this trip? Was it just your family or did you have colleagues or friends that went with you? That's a very good question. The field work we've done is uh, it's Pamela and me. And, and then when Michael was born, we took him in uh, to the field as often as we could. And But we are outside. We're foreigners in Mexico. Obviously, we're North Americans. And so we wanted to incorporate as many Mexican students and other anthropologists as we could. So for each of these pilgrimages, we invited people from the University of Veracruz, which is the 
at the in the Jalapa Veracruz, in the capital of the state of Veracruz, and so we had um, other anthropologists and students join us during uh, during uh, most of these pilgrimages. Now, most a lot of people wanted to come. We invited we invite ten or twelve, but it went at the, the date of the pilgrimage actually arrived. Things came up, and only about uh, you know between say three or four um, Mexicans actually joined us on each of these pilgrimages. The um, one thing to add too, um, that these are definitely organized by the ritual specialists in communities and they attract people from all around the area, from other communities. There's a large network of kinship, um, you know, families that are in different communities. So each one of these five uh, pilgrimages that we participated in, and they were just a few of the constant round of uh, ritual activity that goes on in this area. But we would, we estimated and we counted uh, usually as large a group as 70 people. Mm-hmm. So uh, the ritual specialists, usually several of them, men and women alike, and uh, a lot of uh, their followers. Um, so attracting the uh, a critical mass is a key job of a ritual specialist. Mm-hmm. What specific journey, sacred journey, in fact, did you take? Because from what I read, there were different sacred journeys that you could go on. So why was the journey that you went on special to you? Well, I think the answer to that is that uh, the, the object of the pilgrimage was a sacred mountain called Postecli. And Postecli means broken in the Nahuatl language. And what it is, is it's a volcanic core, a huge, gigantic volcanic core, sticking straight out of the tropical forest over, 2000, over like 2,200 feet high. And if you look for certain angles, it looks like the top is broken off of this huge rock. And um, so that's the, the this uh, post-techly is, is the key element in uh, Nahuatl religion. It was inside of this rock that Korn and his twin sister hid from people and threatened starvation. And this is part of the myth system that we uh, that we record and you can read in the book. Uh, eventually, the top of the mountain was broken off in order to free the corn and to save uh, save people. So the the we went on two pilgrimages to the top of Postecli of this particular sacred mountain, and then three pilgrimages to lesser mountains. So I would say the um, the trip we took you know, to the top of uh, of Postecli was the, was the, the the key uh, experience. One thing to add, I think, about the um, the story of particular this particular mountain, Postecli. It's I think it's a very well known location uh, to other uh, cultural groups uh, throughout. Um, there may be some connection even in the Popol Vuh to um, mm-hmm. the same story. It's it's probably a part of uh, indigenous oral narrative in Mexico that's widely shared. But this is a, a rather spectacular uh, spot. Um, so one of the, the the way we organize the book is to tell the stories uh, about the story of corn. Um, so we report um, kind of a composite or amalgam of five sacred myths, starting with the um, uh, story of corn, to explain the, the reason why this journey is so special, not, not simply to us, but to everyone who participates. And so you mentioned Spanish. How is the problem of translation solved? Was Spanish the only language you were dealing with? and was it only spoken words that you had to translate? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Um, one of the problems of doing anthropological fieldwork like this is you have to operate in, um, obviously, in foreign languages. Now, Spanish is doable, and we both speak Spanish, but the difficulty is learning Nahuatl. And we studied it, we studied Nahuatl, the Nahuatl language, the, the language of these people at Indiana University, where we were both graduate students, and it was taught there. And then uh, we uh, did our own kind of study over the years and gathered vocabulary words and asked people how to say things and eventually got to the point where we could understand a lot, most of what was being said and we could express ourselves uh, also. But that's always a, a problem um, in, is getting familiar enough with the language so that you can ask in-depth questions. Now, I will say that um, in this book, we've also included chanting by the ritual specialists both the men and the women. And uh, with the help of bilingual informants, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, we were able to transcribe these uh, and to 
and translate them into English. So there's 10 chants with the Nahuatl on the left-hand side of the page and the English on the right-hand side of the page. And I will say that to get these 10 chants into, into accurate English and an accurate translation took us more than two and a half years of work. So it's very, very difficult. In fact, um, that really uh, was a major uh, enterprise, and we were not comfortable doing it on our own. But I, I would like to mention the names of uh, some of the indigenous um, participants who have gone into anthropology and other disciplines um, themselves. Uh, Eduardo de la Cruz uh, and, and his wife, Brisa Savala, helped us tremendously with uh, the final check of the um, uh, the English translation. Brisa is a trilingual uh, speaker of English, Nahuatl, and Spanish. Um, and Abelardo de la Cruz and his wife, Alberta Mar- uh, Martinez Cruz, um, also uh, cooperated. There's a large uh, Nahuatl language uh, program that they are all they were all uh, affiliated with. So they lent a tremendous. Uh, effort to it. And one thing Alan didn't mention is the 1998 pilgrimage. We were accompanied by University of Veracruz uh, anthropologist, a few of them, and they brought along a videographer. And that was, turns out to be the reason why we were able to do this. When you're participating in a, on, uh, and hanging by your toenails on the side of a sacred mountain, you really cannot uh, take time to record. So the videographer captured uh, 10 hours of chanting in a much more comfortable um, in the setting in the village of Amatlan. And so we were able to, to use a lot of that material. Um, and that's what appears in the book. Some of the recordings were, were taken later in the pilgrimage with a handheld video, uh, video camera. Um, so that problem of translation, as Alan has always mentioned, it's, it's really, really very difficult to capture both colloquial and accurate translations. But we, with the aid of our indigenous uh, helpers, the, uh, the work is, is much more polished. What about European influences? Was the mythos only indigenous? There, um, these people were uh, colonized in the sixth, early 16th century. So, of course, there's going to be European influence, mainly Spanish influence on their religious beliefs and on the language and on, on all aspects of their lives. But what is absolutely amazing about these pilgrimages is how little influence Spanish has had. Now, they have incorporated, for example, saints uh, in, uh, that, that, that are a subject of some of the offerings and everything. But these saints are matched with, uh, with indigenous deities very often. So, for example, uh, we will have uh, San Juan. And they'll talk about San Juan. They, they pronounce it Sawan. In, in Nahuatl, but San Juan is a um, is a a, a deity or a, a, a divinity of uh, storms and rain. It's a kind of a rain uh, spirit entity. So they what they do is they name it with a with a Spanish name, but the actual content of the uh, divinity itself is is largely pre-Hispanic. What is costumbre? Is that a religion? Yeah, costumbre is uh, what they call their religion in Spanish. And it's interesting, they call it el costumbre. But uh, in Spanish, it should be la costumbre. But they change the, uh, the gender marking at the beginning of the word to, um, to, to create the definition of themselves, which stands for their own religion. They have a name for their religion, tlanotokili, um, which means to be worshipful or to, or to, to, uh, to be respectful. But they've taken a Spanish name. When you're speaking Spanish to them, they'll call it El Costumbre. I know Dia de los Muertos was recent. Is that a celebration that you encountered in your research? Or are there things in Mexico today that are historically relevant to the Nahuatl culture? Yeah, uh, we uh, here in America, North America, we got the... Uh, Dia de los Muertos from, probably from the Nahuas. This is a, a custom that they've had, and it probably undoubtedly traces to the pre-Hispanic period. And uh, Day of the Dead is a, is a very important ritual marking in the uh, in the ritual calendar for these people. And they set up elaborate altars, and the, the, the ritual lasts about four days, and they make food offerings, uh, first of all, to the children who died, the spirits of the children who died, and then to the older people who died. And then at the very end, the last day, they go to the graveyard and they lay out a beautiful feast on the top of the graves of the of their dead relatives. So 
the whole idea of Day of the Dead actually comes probably from the Nawas themselves. That's really interesting. So what about the elements like fire, water, earth, etc.? Are those special? Do they hold significance? Yeah, very, very much like the uh, ancient Greeks, we have earth, air, fire, and water are the basic elements in our uh, metaphysics. And so you'll see these uh, elements appear in different aspects, different parts of the rituals and their chanting and everything um, all, all throughout their, their religious practices. You also find um, references to it in their complex oral, narr- oral traditions, oral narrations that they tell, the, myth, the myths that they tell about everything. So it's, it's because it's, uh, they basically reflect the metaphysics uh, of, of the group. And illustrations take up a vital part of your book. Um, who were the illustrators? And can you also tell the audience more about your figures, the plates, and the tables that show up in the text? Yes, the um, again the press uh, did an exemplary job uh, com- um, designing the book. Uh, we worked very closely with uh, a, a talented compositor, uh, Tina Caccelli, and she did. Uh, we worked a, a long time getting all of the uh, really the illustrations and the drawings of the paper cuttings that we've already mentioned briefly. Um, the artwork. Um, Really, it is it's religious art. These uh, thousands upon thousands of ephemeral figures cut from paper, uh, handmade paper in the past, and in other communities, people may be familiar with some of the Otomi uh, paper figures um, that we can find. Uh, you can find in folk art shops in Mexico, and uh, they're used in Otomi rituals. But related to the their practices, the Nawa paper figures um, are. This is a collection of um, paper figures prepared for a major pilgrimage like Postectly. And we had an artist, Anna Myers, uh, whose grandparents were Nahuatl speakers. She was a student at our university and has done illustrations for us for many, many years. And she produced the more than 300 vector drawings that illustrate what is a rare and very unusual opportunity for us to, to illustrate for people a complete corpus of cuttings of figures of uh, entities, as you mentioned, images of fire, images of water, the spirit entity of water in many different aspects, many aspects of the earth uh, figure. Uh, The list is enormous. And again, for a single ritual like this major pilgrimage to uh, post-tectly, they would cut uh, tens of thousands of these paper figures and carefully organize them, label them, wrap them in bundles, uh, wrap them up in uh, fresh... uh, Palm mats and carry this burden to the tops of the mountains, deploying the paper figures on altars all the way along, multiple um, uh, repetitions of the offerings. Um, and I can't say enough about uh, both our artists and uh, another friend, uh, an uh, uh, artist from uh, Indiana, um, Michael August, uh, volunteered uh, years ago to draw uh, illustrations of the, the, the myth of the corn spirit uh, seven flower, Chikamashoshik, and his beautiful artwork illustrates that that um, important story. I, th- I hope people in Mexico will really appreciate uh, seeing it illustrated. Um, so we'll say more about the paper figures, but those are two of our artists. Alan, do you have something to add about this? <laughs> well, you know, uh, our names went on as authors of the book. But as a matter of fact, these, this is a group effort, and there were probably a dozen or more people who really worked very hard to make this become a possibility. And uh, that includes Nawaz themselves, as well as these artists that Pamela just mentioned, and not to mention friends who read the manuscript and helped us to um, you know, eliminate errors and to smooth out the whole presentation. So it really is a, is a group effort. And we are seriously... Um... Uh, thankful that we had this team of people. It really definitely was a group effort. Um, and what we've tried to do, it's uh, we've published many other um, articles and some books about the sacred paper figures, this uh, incredible complex of uh, paper cutting. Um, and we've attempted many types of analysis. You asked earlier, you know, about the difficulty of translation. Well, it's also extremely difficult to 
translate or interpret, if you would, uh, the iconography of these paper figures. So we, we took quite a few different approaches in the book, which we explained. We, uh, we took all of the drawings and laid them out in a large tabular arrangement. The book includes a fold-out, a folded uh, insert in the back of the book. Um, and kind of like a, an ancient codex, um, these rare uh, remnant of literature of the uh, ancient Aztecs, or Maya, uh, we tried to analyze their iconography and their uh, the possibility of them having a narrative order. So the interpretive work um, was aided certainly by the fact that the costumbre religion depends on such an incredible body of visual artistic material. We really thought we had a ready-made inventory of the spirit world at our disposal, and we've... Um, plumbed it for what we can. I hope uh, that others are be inspired to take that analysis further. Let me add a little something um, that I had neglected earlier. Of course, the people who helped us the most are the people in Amatlan, and particularly the ritual specialists. Uh, we actually dedicated the book to the, to the, I would say, the head ritual specialist in this region, a guy named Encarnacion Tez Hernandez. His nickname was Cirillo, and Cirillo was extremely helpful and very anxious for us to not only record uh, the um, chanting, but to take photos and to listen to them tell the myths that underlie these rituals so we could record them. Because as we'll talk a little bit later, the Nahuas are undergoing radical change right now because of the economic changes that are going on in Mexico. And their fear was that their religion was going to be lost and uh, rejected by the younger generation. So they wanted it written down. And that it was our pleasure to try to do that, which we have done in this book. Okay, your son Michael came up earlier. Did he contribute to the book, Pilgrimage to Broken Mountain? He did indeed. As, as he, uh, as Alan pointed out, we also put Michael's uh, Sandstrom's name on the title page. He's an adult now with his own children. He's an architect. Um, uh, he's blended uh, his adventuresome childhood with uh, his, his talents. Uh, yeah, he, he did some beautiful, skilled schematic drawings, diagrams and maps for the, uh, the book, illustrating the sacred geography. He illustrated uh, some of the, the hard to explain and uh, with the picture's worth a thousand words. He, he found very, as an architect, he's talented at the drawing, um, very succinct way to help us synthesize the details and communicate the complex relationships between these uh, elements of their worldview. Um, so he, uh, it certainly has influenced his life. He said it was a, a significant part uh, influence on his, his life as well. Did you guys take home any memorabilia? You mentioned the paper figures. What about adornments? Do you still have any of those items? Uh, we um, took a, were given collections to take home, as a matter of fact, by Cirillo and his colleagues, his professional colleagues. And he wanted us to show Americans uh, all of this stuff, all of the material he gave us, uh, to show how beautiful his religion is. Now, um, the paper figures, for the most part, are being housed in museums at the moment. We also uh, have all of the oral narratives we have put in a... Um, an organization affiliated with the University of Texas called the Archives of the Indigenous Languages of Latin America, which um, makes these story, these uh, myths available to anybody for free. They are also been transcribed and translated for people. The Nahuas themselves can get access to these. So we brought stuff home, but the uh, we're just a, it's a transition zone for, from from us to uh, to put it in museums for uh, permanent storage. And for future scholars to be able to look but, at. But there are, I must add, an, an, an interesting uh, phenomenon on pilgrimage. Uh, we In the book, we, we do look at some other uh, comparative uh, uh, traditions of pilgrimage in Mexico and worldwide, trying to come up with a, uh, a, a bit of a deeper understanding to which our empirical ethnographic data could, uh, you know, illuminate the principles behind pilgrimage. And you always take home a souvenir. Yeah. And it should be... Something, and we witnessed this uh, time and again in each pilgrimage, people would uh, bring home, and we illustrate in the book, uh, some rather large, uh, large format uh, paper figures. Again, all of the incredibly um, uh, fragile material or uh, medium of paper, uh, but they would 
in for, reinforce the, the paper figures, these larger ones, with little folded uh, paper bones that they called in Spanish, huesitos, and they would dress the paper figures with beautiful cloth dresses and braids of ribbon, jewelry, rings, and all of that. Um, and these were... Um, uh, these would e- reveal or evoke, uh, they were manifestations of the corn and other elements like uh, earth and water. And these would be taken to the mountain and brought home and kept in people's homes as souvenirs. So that's an excellent question. Um, it, it does the memorabilia for academics is our research material. And so we're trying to do an analysis. As Alan said, we've stored definitely the uh, Indiana University Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology has a very large collection of our uh, paper figures since 1970, um, and and these pilgrimage materials that are in the book are housed there safely now. Are there collection materials housed in a more digital humanities format? Can we access these in an online database? Um, the oral narratives you can yes. through ILAW. The paper figures have not been put up on any kind of digital format at all. You'd have to actually go to the museums probably to, to study them. But we published a book, and we're um, privileged to, to be able to include all these uh, illustrations. Um, so I think uh, this really is a, a place for people to see them. Obviously, they can be viewed in a PDF uh, version of the book um, and examined much more closely. The photographs actually uh, in that format and ebook um, are pretty spectacular, to be honest. Uh, and as Pamela mentioned, the, uh, our previous publications very often contain uh, reproductions of these paper figures. We are working on uh, archiving these uh, just for that uh, reason. But again, these this is sacred uh, art. This is not... Um, uh, material that probably should be uh, necessarily uh, visible um, or, or misused for you know commercial reasons or anything like that. So we actually we are a little bit reticent right now to uh, to publish them make and them too to available. Make, make them available in that way. But we are very pleased uh, if people uh, will make good use of the audio material. And do you mind going back to? help your audience understand some of your previous writings and how they might be related to the new book that you have now? No, we have, we have, um, I think a number of books, more than six books and I don't know, 50 or 60 uh, book chapters and journal articles. So it's, it's quite a large body of material. Most of it's available, um, uh, through uh, online and it, it, in some format, I think. Uh, Internet Archive contains yeah. two of our books. Our first book on the paper figure complex of the Nawa Otomi and Tepewa uh, ritual specialists. It was called Traditional Paper Making and Paper Cult Figures, uh, University of Oklahoma Press published it. But we have a freely accessible Internet Archive uh, edition of that. Also, Alan's book uh, published by Oklahoma in 1991, Corn is Our Blood, is available in Spanish edition, and uh, the English edition is also freely accessible on Internet Archive. Right. So we're, we're doing what we can to spread the word. What about the rural village that you did visit? So now, now a culture, is it something that is alive in the broader Mexican landscape, or is it isolated? Uh, the village itself, uh, I think we would call isolated, but um, Nahua culture is not restricted to that one village. It's found all over Mexico. It's influenced a number of uh, areas of Mexican uh, national life. There are about two to two and a half million speakers of the Nahuatl language, and they're spread all the way from North Mexico down to Nicaragua. So there's, it's a, a large number of people the language, by the way, is related to uh, Native American languages spoken in the American Southwest, uh, languages like Ute, Paiute, Comanche, Shoshone, and Hopi. So it's, it's a related language and probably originated in the American Southwest and then moved down into Mexico, uh, you know, a, a millennia or two ago. Do we find Naho culture in America, particularly from like Southern California to other parts of the Southwest? Well, uh, the, uh, the latest understanding is that uh, the American Southwest and uh, Central Mexican cultures are highly related to each other. 
and this is not this is something that's fairly recent in our in our understanding. So you would find uh, traits that of that in Nahuatl culture found in Mexico, probably in the American Southwest. But Nahuatl, the Nahuas have also influenced daily life for a lot of us. They're the ones who gave us tomatoes, for example. They gave us the word tomato, tomat. Uh, they gave us avocados, um, uh, the, uh, including the word awokat. They gave us chocolate. The word chocolate is a Nahuatl word. So they've influenced, uh, their influence goes far beyond uh, their, their Mexican homeland. And how far back does Nahuatl history go? For a historian, they might want to understand some things the anthropologists are describing, but they want to look at it from a more chronological perspective. How would they do that? Well, the, uh, the, the group that is most famous that most people have heard of are the Aztecs, and the Aztecs were Nahuas. And so there's an enormous body of written records on the Aztecs after the 1521 Spanish conquest. And there's a, a, an industry of ethno-historians and archaeologists who are looking at uh, Aztec culture and Aztec um, uh, record-keeping. M- many of the records, by the way, are in the Nahuatl language. So to do this work, you have to know Nahuatl. You have to know it really well. And um, so uh, um, the, we trace it back to the Aztecs. There is also the previous civilization called the Toltecs that the Aztecs actually admired and looked back to. And uh, those were also Nahuatl speakers, but they left very few records. Uh, what we know about the Toltecs largely comes from Aztec uh, people themselves who uh, record, re- recalled them and told myths about them. And, and uh, the Spaniards wrote a lot of this down. So, it, and of course they go back further than that, but we, the, the, uh, that record is only available to archeology. span Are there any special archeological methods that you guys employed we are not archaeologists. We are cultural anthropologists. Um, I will say, though, that throughout all of Amatlan and throughout the entire southern Huasteca are ruins from uh, previous civilizations that lived there. There was a, civil, a, a Maya civilization lived there called the Huastec people. They call themselves the Tinec. And they're very, very it's a small separate group that's very much separated from the main body of Maya down south into Yucatan into Guatemala. And they left ruins all over the region. Um, the Nawa still do uh, offerings and rituals on top of ancient uh, platform mounds that were built uh, pre-Hispanically, prehistorically. So the, the, the history is all around them. Are there any specific oral traditions that you learned while you were there? Well, let me just say that uh, we, we spent a lot of time recording oral traditions, and we, um, as I say, they are available to the Isla uh uh, organization at the University of Texas, and they have a very complex uh, or a myth system that involves uh, history of corn, the history of the, the local community. It involves the water and involves our relationship to the ecological factors. There's a, it's a it's a complex, extremely interesting uh, body of oral narrations. They've also incorporated into this uh, stories that were told by traveling merchants from Europe. Uh, and so we, we have a, a beautiful Nahuatl version of Hansel and Gretel. They've modified the story a little bit to make it more comprehensible, but they've incorporated some of the more interesting European stories that were brought to hand by these, by these uh, traveling merchants over the last 500 years. And one thing to add, too, is the reason we include the five uh, uh, traditional stories uh, or myths, really, part of their uh, mythic traditions, uh, oral traditions in the book, is to try to explain uh, something of the worldview, because this is how actually people learn and share um, their understanding of it. Um, The stories definitely circulate around their their ethical system of uh, respect and reciprocity. Um, and explain in many ways, uh, and, and they are the clue for us to understand the ritual practices um, that that aim to restore uh, a world that is in constant flux uh, and, and to help restore equilibrium and balance. Um, so you can get to that through the oral traditions and by observing the rituals. That's why our focus um, on religion uh, and uh, the approach that we've taken to understand their, their statements about it uh, and their practice and observe closely their behavior. Um, that's why this, uh, it's kind of a multi, 
method and multimedia approach that we've taken, but we're very, very much focused on uh, explaining the point of view of, of the Nahuatl practitioners as to why they do these pilgrimages and, and, and keep their costumbre traditions alive. Do you challenge scientific approaches to anthropology in this work by focusing on religion and pantheism? Uh, no, we find we are supporters of the anthropological approach in anthropology, and we extend this, this scientific approach uh, in order to better understand the religious uh, system. Um, the, the topic religion is, is comprehensible in a scientific way. We think we even have uh, insights into, um, into the causations of, of the, the, what the factors that cause a religion like this to develop. So we're very much in the, in the scientific tradition, and we don't see religion and ritual as outside of the scope of science. And is it possible to take a more agnostic or atheistic look at the Nahua people? <clears throat> yeah, um, we are, uh, we, we we have are documenting this religious system and their practices and beliefs. But you have to. It's really important to understand that not all Nawa go along with this. There are Nawa agnostics and Nawa atheists, as well as there are agnostics and atheists in our own society. We we go in there as neutral observers, uh, but we've learned to develop an incredible level of respect for their religious beliefs and their their, their system of offerings. Uh, we we think they are. You can really learn a lot from them, and uh, that would help actually improve our own lives. Then let's transition into the topic of rituals. Um, did the people you visited include sacrifices of living creatures? These are the Nawa, as Alan has uh, Nawa people, as Alan has clearly pointed out, are descendants of uh, the Aztec and. Uh, ancient cultures uh, who did we know practice human sacrifice uh today they the sacrifice is of uh chickens and turkeys so the sacrificial fowl uh do play a part uh, blood is an offering of the the, um, the highest order uh along with all the other things that people treasure the food and um um beautiful flowers and, and altars are an amazing thing but it is these are the uh, descendants of the Aztecs, and there is blood sacrifice um, it's done, as Alan mentioned, too, that the importance of uh, respect and reciprocity with the spirit world, um, what, what is happening with the blood offering is it is, it is the, the source of power and uh, vitality. It's what animates uh, a living thing. And by sacrificing and, and using the blood of a, of, a, of a sacrificial fowl, the food is consumed later, that's for sure. They, you know, they're, they're dispatched uh, swiftly without um, any kind of uh, torture or anything like that. They're, they're cooked, the meat, the meat is eaten afterwards. Um, but the chikobalistli is the word they use for the power or the energy that comes from blood. So yeah, there's a, it's hard in a short answer to explain uh, how sacrifice can be justified. It does seem perhaps to people as an unnecessary cruel element. But, you know, religions worldwide have all had an element of sacrifice. Um, and you only have to think of European religions and their relationship to, you know, uh, blood sacrifice uh, to understand that. So I think with the, that's all we can really uh, add. We do we address the question of blood and, and the power that comes from blood and why this is done in the book very very uh, carefully. Alan, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I um, when we hear about the Aztecs, the thing that pops into people's minds immediately is human sacrifice. And I would never justify it, and Pamela would never justify it. And it, it's, you know, uh, from my perspective, it's it's um, just very distasteful and awful. But put it in context: in the 16th century, the Spaniards, who felt they were so superior to the Aztecs, were murdering hundreds of thousands of people in the Inquisition at that same time. So, it, if you if you put it in perspective a little bit, it, it's not it's not quite so anomalous. Warfare. You must have encountered this topic in your time there. Was there a fight or war that came up during your research of the Nahua people? Uh, 
that, that's an excellent question, uh, right on the heels of human sacrifices, Aztec warfare. So, I mean, these themes are, need to be addressed. Uh, we do not uh, report on any uh, relationship to uh, of the rituals to uh, warfare in the sense that, that you maybe are thinking. Uh, today, drug wars in Mexico have seriously interfered with the the quality of life of not just the indigenous people in the in the communities in the outback, it's it's a terrible terrible trial. Uh, land of battles and all of that are uh, constantly uh, threatening people's safety and uh, security. Um, what we can say, though, on a different, slightly different angle about the idea of warfare, is that the ritual specialists, I would say, and we do write about this. Um, are, are clearly warriors uh, on behalf of their entire community, not only their individual clients or as curers trying to heal people, but they, they behave uh, very much like a, a dignified warrior. Um, and, and so that's a precarious role that a, that a ritual specialist takes on. Both men and women um, are, are clearly heroic and respected for that, that kind of um, combative uh, approach to, to, uh, countering the the forces of disorder or disequilibrium or uh, human suffering. So there's no question that they are truly respected. I think that ties it back to uh, perhaps how the Aztecs regarded warriors. It's, um, it's, it's an interesting question and an interesting subject to uh, pay attention to. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sometimes not understood the self-sacrifice involved in becoming a ritual specialist. You're dealing with these dangerous forces your whole life, and there's always the possibility that you might be using your skills against people. So several of the ritual specialists that we've known over the years have gotten themselves uh, killed uh, on suspicion of using, um, using their powers against people. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a quite a dangerous occupation, actually. And what were some of the occupations of the Nahua people that you want to mention? Uh, these were these are uh, corn farmers. They grow uh, corn, beans, and squash using uh, no animal power or um, or mechanical power. It's all human uh, effort, and uh, it's um, it's uh, gardening essentially. It's milpa horticulture, and uh, and they also raise some farm animals, uh, chickens and turkeys. And the wealthier members of the community might have a cow, or a, a, a head or two of cattle. If you had to change anything about your journey, what would it be? Well, I can speak for myself. Uh, the the one thing I would like to do is to is to continue the work down there. It's an incredible, life changing adventure, and to be able to meet and talk to these uh, people is is uh, is awe inspiring. It's it's an amazing experience, and so every chance we got over the years, we would go down there, even if it was just for a week or two. But we try to at least uh, pencil out a year to spend with them. And so um, it's, you know, it's just, and every time you go down there, you learn something completely new. You learn a whole new way to look at the world. So it's, it's really an amazing uh, experience. It, uh, the, the success that we have uh, managed to, uh, to have in, uh, in completing these uh, projects, we've always had a, an agenda and a, um, a research proposal to, you know, to take a year from your teaching and librarianship work, you have to uh, justify your, your leave. Um, so a sabbatical usually did have a, a strong focus. And so uh, recording uh, oral narratives was the focus of one year, uh, documenting horticultural practices and uh, the use of uh, changes in uh, crops and uh, patio animals and more of an economic anthropology uh, strategy. Um, uh, study, I mean, uh, to uh, was a focus. Um, so I, I, I do think the. Um, well, Nathan, one thing I could mention uh, here—it's it's sort of an aside—but um, the people often ask about the paper that's used in the cutting, and um, and how, what did the people do in the pre-Hispanic days before the Spaniards got there? And in fact, uh, the uh, paper making is an ancient tradition in Mesoamerica. They made paper basically out of the inner bark of various fig trees and also from uh, a maguey plant. And they would uh, tap out these, these, uh, this, um, these sheets of paper on these flat boards and dry them in the sun. And they became thick like parchment. And this, was the, this paper was used by the uh, Aztecs 
we know from the historic from the Spaniard records of the Spaniards, and they used them for priest costumes, for banners and flags that they flew, and for divination and all kinds of things. It was one of the main items of tribute that was uh, shipped to the Aztec capitals from the provinces, from the tribute empire. Millions and millions of sheets of this handmade paper were uh, brought into the Aztec capital every year. Now today, the people still make paper. You can still see it, but it's a, it's a lot of work. And so what they do as a sort of a workaround is they go to the markets and they buy paper. And there's there's three basic kinds of paper they use. They use a kind of a newsprint, which of course doesn't last very long if you're trying to store it. They use a, a, a tissue paper that's colored for certain uh, uh, dangerous wind spirits. And they use a, a, a polished paper um, called papel lustre for the uh, permanent uh, seed figures that they cut and they keep in everybody's house. So paper is an important part of this thing, but they have modernized and they're using paper they buy in the market these days for their paper figures. What about altar traditions? Um, was the Nahua traditional practice communal or was it more individualistic? Uh, I can address that. I think the uh, it's definitely communal. Uh, it, these are dozens and dozens of people uh, interrupt their lives to help make the altar adornments and to uh, participate in these rituals. It's a it's a, a, a lot of camaraderie. They're a lot of fun, actually, and they go on day and night. By the way, there's no rest, so you can have a ritual going on for ten days, twelve days without any rest at all for anybody. And there's lots of food, and there's offerings that are dedicated. I would like to point out, by the way, that the altar is set up in a, a kind of an interesting way. It has an arch over it. There's a table as the main altar. There's an arch over it. And they they put offerings on top of the table and beneath the table. So you've got an arch with offerings on the table and offerings underneath. And what this does is it, um, it embodies the three-tiered levels of the cosmos, the sky, the earth's surface, and the underworld. So they're actually modeling the, the cosmos in these rituals on these altars. These altars are beautiful. Uh, they are made to be beautiful. They put a lot of effort into it, covered with fresh flowers and greenery. Um, and they are seats of exchange with the uh, the, the uh, spirit entities or the divinities that are addressed in the form of these paper figures. We can't stress uh, enough how important uh, reading the paper figures is to understanding the what they're trying to accomplish through the, the uh, ritual and the uh, design of their altars. It's, it's an amazing and complex phenomenon. Veracruz, can you give your audience a better description of the natural habitat? Yeah, it's, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, it's uh, the foothills of the Sierra Madres. It's tropical. It's very hot. Um, there's lots of, everything is up and down. Uh, and um, it's, uh, there. It's things are, re- villages are reached by, or markets by trails. So you've got, and you've got to cross bodies of water constantly. Um it has beautiful tropical birds like parrots are there. Um, it has alligators in the streams uh, that you once in a while you run into. It has iguanas. It has uh, huge tarantulas that get come out at night <laughs> and on the ground. And um, you will see them. The tarantulas are so big that they catch mice, actually. And they will. you'll see a tarantula run across the ground outside of a house with a mouse in its mouth and go into a hole that it made. So uh, there's also snakes. There's poisonous snakes. There's a, a snake called a fertilance, which is extremely deadly, and the people are afraid of them, and they do occasionally bite somebody. So it's a, it, it's you know, as Pamela said, there's a saying about the Washteca, which is this area where we work. Even the butterflies bite, and so people, the outsiders, have kept away from it, which I think has partly been responsible for allowing these ancient traditions to to continue to this day. When were you most nervous on this trip? I was most nervous on this trip when we were clinging by our toenails and fingernails to the side of a 2,000-foot mountain. Uh, It was uh, awe-inspiring and hair-raising. The trail sometimes uh, straight down would be about a foot wide, and you'd have to progress very carefully. Um, We've gone on this 
Trek twice, as Alan said, in 1998 and again in 2001. And uh, first time during extreme heat and uh, things were a fire. Uh, we're getting used to wildfires now, but it was unusual back in 1998 to have the air filled with smoke. And that was worldwide in 1998. 2001, it was uh, the beginning of the rainy season. So it was a, a slippery, muddy mess. And there were um, lots of uh, centipedes, millipedes that are bad to touch and there are places on the on the hill where you have to um hold on to a rope and just ascend through handhold and uh, toe holds all the way up but i wasn't uh deterred and neither was alan uh neither was our son michael he thought that was an adventure and there were plenty of people our age now uh going on this trek so i just kept my fears to myself i will say that uh you have this foot-wide ledge in the rock that goes a quarter of the way around this this uh, gigantic um, uh, uh, boulder. Really, is what it is. It's a you know it's the center of a uh, a volcano, and you've got to hold on. You're by the way, you're carrying a big load up there. You're carrying the offerings. You're carrying chickens and turkeys sometimes, and you have to hold on with your hands. And a, a slip would be a thousand foot drop. And uh, sometimes across your hand as you're holding, a tropical centipede would crawl, and you could not let your hand go to, to, to get the centipede off of you. So that's probably the most dangerous and nerve-wracking part of the trip. Everybody wants to know about the bugs, but, you know, really, it's kind of the uh, it, it, it's, it, ethnographic field research uh, covers a lot of a broad range of territory. There are a lot of pleasures of being in the field as well and, and good camaraderie and companionship, but uh, people do focus on the, the uncomfortable. Nasty bugs. Yep. What pilgrimages sorry, <laughs> What other pilgrimages from around the world most resemble the Nahua? It could be the pilgrimage to Mecca or some other trek. The uh, pilgrimages are actually found in virtually every culture in the world. This is part, one of the things we learned in uh, writing this book. The, most, the pilgrimage that most resemble the Nahua are from other Native American groups. This is very commonly found in North, throughout North, South, and, and uh, Middle America. Uh, the American Southwest is filled with pilgrimage routes. Uh, the Andes are filled with pilgrimage routes and often associated with sacred mountains. Um, so this Nahua pilgrimage is not an unusual or weird thing at all. It's found virtually everywhere. If you could go on another pilgrimage, where would you go? Back up to the top of one of those sacred mountains. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I would love to do it again. I, I'm sorry that uh, the political situation is such that it would not be a, a, a safe thing. And uh, we, we imagine, and some of our indigenous colleagues are certainly able to travel there, you know, with care and visit their families. Um, uh, so the, the, the ritual practices are ongoing. I'm sorry that we can't be part of it right now. And what about your retirement? Do you still involve yourself with your previous um, school, university? And uh, what work are you doing now to keep up to date? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I retired and we both retired in 2010, a long time ago. And one of the reasons was to be able to apply ourselves to, uh, to publishing this work, this and other work uh, that, that we've been, um, we're organizing um, all of our data, we are we're making sure that all of our field uh, materials are available for future scholars, and we're continuing to publish. So we do a lot of reading and we do a lot of writing, and being free from the teaching and administrative uh, constraints has allowed us to, uh, to uh, make a lot of progress on this. I will say, however, as I will repeat, that this particular book was a, uh, a labor of love, and uh, we took eight full years to write it, to get together the information and to, to get it published. Any final thoughts for your audience from Alan or Pamela? Well, final thoughts are always uh, an open end for another conversation. Actually. Um, I, one thing that Alan and I both feel very strongly that though this took us a, a very long time, uh, the output of the book was uh gratifying and, and successful. We do hope it gets a good reception and other people uh, will find uh, 
avenues for new research uh, in it. The message that we ended the book with was that the the solutions that the Nama people and their indigenous neighbors, uh, the other cultures of uh, of Mesoamerica, uh, have they have found ways to solve uh, a lot of the the crisis in the world. We are certainly embroiled in political and ecological crises of existential, uh, you know, dimension. And I think it's very helpful if we would look at the way other people and other cultures have solved uh, problems. Um, if if we would only take the trouble to learn, it's clearly the anthropological message. So um, we have contributed this work to, to that. It's uh, empirical information that I hope will be uh, uh, well used. Um, I would add to that just sort of a summary statement that the people mm-hmm. of the world have a lot to teach us if we just took the time to learn. Much of Nawa religion would benefit the uh, the most advanced modern economies of the world today, which is deal with the ecological factors with respect, don't take more than you need, keep a balance going, keep equilibrium, and, and, and focus on your, your social life and your um, and, and your community. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Alan and Pamela Sandstrom for contributing an episode about their book, Pilgrimage to Broken Mountain, Nahua's Sacred Journeys in Mexico's Huasteca Vera Cruzana. I'm your host, Nathan Moore. Until next time, and farewell. <laughs>